0: We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our
1: clients and look forward
0: to serving you for years
1: to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
2: So, are we still in a pandemic? Dr. Eric Topol on where we stand.
3: It's not over by any means, but at least right now, making it a non-emergency is appropriate.
2: I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A look at how gun violence restraining orders could prevent gun violence. Usually the person whose guns and access to guns
4: is at issue is going through some kind of a traumatic event.
2: Details on one community college's new four-year degree program. And we take you to the Bay to hear about the history of Parchester Village. That's ahead on Midday Edition.
0: Hi.
2: After nearly three years, San Diego's COVID state of emergency is coming to an end, and so is the city's vaccine mandate for employees. While the state of emergency will end late February, what does science actually say about where we're at in this pandemic and what best policy should be? Here with Insight is Dr. Eric Topol, Director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, welcome back.
3: Thanks very much, Jade. Always great to be with you.
2: Thank you. So first things first, what do you make of this state of emergency coming to an end?
3: Well, certainly um, it's a good sign. We have so much population immunity now against the virus with all the infections, the vaccines, the boosters, and their combinations. And overall, the country has weathered this most recent variant called xbb five relatively well. Uh, and so It does appear, at least for now, we're in a good state. Uh, It's not over by any means. We're going to be facing this virus for the years ahead. But at least right now, uh, making it a non-emergency is appropriate.
2: That's good to hear. And the city will also end its vaccine mandate policy for employees as well.
3: What's your thought on that? Well, I've never been a big advocate of mandates because it raises antibodies in people, particularly since the CDC has never recognized that people who've had COVID would be equivalent to that being at least one shot. And so there's never been the proper recognition of COVID as being a form of immunity. Not that we want anyone to get it because there's an unpredictable aspect about the outcomes and possible long COVID, but I've never thought mandates were good Uh, It's led to, you know, lots of uh, really uh, uh, negative responses. So I'm glad to see that the mandates have been dropped.
2: You know, there seems to be this disconnect where scientists and health experts continue to say that we're very much still in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, However, many people and now most local governments are scaling back on most, if not all, COVID safety measures. What do you make of that?
3: Well, the truth is in between, Jade. You know, um, we're not done with this virus. We could easily see, uh, you know, more significant variants, a whole new family of variants beyond Omicron, which we've been dealing with essentially for over a year now. So um, that remains to be seen. And and only over the years ahead will we know uh, if we've gotten through the worst of it. Um, You know, there's still the ability to... uh, reduce infections by keeping up with boosters using masks when there's indoor gatherings uh, uh particularly when there's absence of good ventilation and air filtration and we know we know a lot of tactics about how to deal with the virus the problem Jade is we're just so fed up with it we just you know capitulated that we have these defenses don't even want to use them so there's still going to be risks out there, particularly in people uh, who don't have an intact immune system response or people of advanced age. And those are the people that really have to keep their guard up.
2: So Dr. Topol, how would you characterize the world we live in now? Are we in a pandemic? Is, is, are we in an endemic state? How does that language affect how careful people are and the spread of the virus?
3: Yeah, well, it's hard to know uh, when we don't do that many tests. Uh, how many cases are really happening at any moment in time. Right now, we're starting to descend as a country in the most recent wave, fortunately. Um, and so it, hopefully, you know, we're going to go through some period where things will be relatively stable. But I think it's fair to predict now, after a few years of watching the virus, that we'll see another wave uh, in the in the times ahead. Uh, when exactly that'll occur within a matter of weeks or months, Uh, but it will occur. The question is, is our current level of immunity based on all these infections and and boosters, vaccines, is it enough to withstand further challenges? And we only will know uh, when we get through the the subsequent waves. And and, uh, right now, there's uncertainty. If we learn anything in this pandemic is not to be certain, not to try to predict, because uh, all, often that's uh, very inaccurate.
2: Be prepared and be flexible, it seems. Um, so are we at the point when COVID is like the flu?
3: Well, uh, I wouldn't say that because um, there's many things different about this virus. First of all, there's always the risk of long COVID, even in healthy people, young, healthy people. Uh, and so that's unpredictable. And that's much more rare with flu. So that's one of the reasons, again, to try to avoid infections or repeat infections. The other thing is if you're immunocompromised or if you're older, the chance of you having a severe COVID is not trivial at all. And so again, unlike flu, uh, there's a risk there that's in excess. Overall, if you look at the big picture, yes, over time, we've tamed this virus in terms of the outcomes, the bad outcomes, but there's still the risk of severe COVID and long COVID that we have to keep uh, in the front of our minds.
2: That in mind, the FDA is also considering revising its vaccination guidelines. What can you tell us about that?
3: Well, I'm not very happy about that one, Jade, because they're basically trying to make it a once a year shot. For most people when the data don't really support that this virus behaves in a seasonal way like flu where there's just a few months of the year when the risk is high we've already learned um, that this virus can cause trouble year long it's not so seasonal in that respect so by making it a once a year shot in people who've never had covid That means a lot of people who haven't had COVID relying only on vaccines and boosters, they're only going to get four, maximum six months protection. So what we are missing is the will to get durable new vaccines that have less side effects that uh, last for years and also block infections that we can get through nasal vaccines. So the FDA isn't even talking about that. They're basically using what we have right now, chasing the variants, which is always hard to do. We were relatively lucky this last round, whereby the BA5 first bivalent uh, was successful against what we're dealing with right now, XBB15, which, you know, there was no guarantee of that. We may not be so successful in the future when you're chasing variants that you don't know what they're going to be. So I much prefer, prefer that we take on the cybercovirus family and have a pan-variant vaccine, which lasts many years. We're just not doing that.
2: When we last spoke, you talked about the latest emerging variant, XBB. Uh, What's the latest on that? Uh, And have they found a better name for it yet? I
3: wish they had (laughs) a better name. Um, Yeah, no, the, the latest is the worst appears to be done now in the U.S. We still here in San Diego have not gotten dominant in that variant. We'll get a new report this week from CDC. But You know we've got a few more weeks before we know for sure that we're going to be relatively unscathed it hit the northeast very hard but right now in the country if you look at the hospitalizations from covid they've they're down more than 30 percent in the last two weeks so it looks like we're descending from the worst of that variant wave which is really good uh, we're in a pretty good state here in San Diego. Let's hope we uh, maintain that as we see more cases from that variant. We'll have other variants in the future, like this one CH1.1 that's warming up right now. But right now, things are looking pretty encouraging.
2: You know, you touched on this earlier, There, but there is a, a new CDC report on how well the bivalent vaccine booster actually works against XBB. What can you tell us more about that? And does that report sit in conflict with the vaccination guidelines that the FDA is considering?
3: Well, there were three really big things today. The new CDC report on the the bivalent booster against XBB15, which looked very good for preventing symptomatic infections, something we haven't seen for a long time because we didn't have a matchup of a new vaccine booster that was much closer to the variants that we're dealing with. So that was good to see about a 50% reduction in symptomatic infections for at least three months across all age groups. And then two reports in the New England Journal that show that the bivalent clearly was better than the original booster for uh, suppressing hospitalizations and severe COVID, including deaths. So all these data points show that we're lucky with the bivalent, that it did its job, not perfect but it was clearly better than the original booster. It was worth doing the updating, uh, and it's helped people, no question, from getting severe COVID and even getting symptomatic infections.
2: Still so much to learn about this virus. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, Director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, as always, thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you, Jade.
2: In the wake of this week's mass shootings, there's more focus on gun violence restraining orders or red flag laws. These allow authorities to temporarily take away firearms and ammunition from people who have been reported by a family member or co-worker. San Diego has been particularly aggressive in pursuing such gun seizures as a way to prevent shootings. The California Report host Saul Gonzalez talked about this approach with San Diego City Attorney Mara Elliott. Here's their conversation.
4: The idea is to give a cooling off period to the individual. Usually the person whose uh, guns and access to guns is at issue is going through some kind of a traumatic event. And it could be a breakup of a relationship. Maybe they got out of the military and they have post-traumatic stress disorder. We've worked closely with Alzheimer's here in San Diego because once responsible gun owners could become irresponsible because their health has deteriorated. So usually it's a cry for help. And we have that cooling off period where somebody doesn't have access to you know, the ability to end their life or somebody else's. And during that period of time, they can seek the help they need to become responsible again.
5: Your office sent us a list of cases where people in San Diego had had their guns taken away from them after they'd been reported by a loved one or a coworker. But I see All of those people already had some history of violent acts or at least violent statements. So you can't just seize firearms if someone expresses a general concern about someone else. Do I have that right?
4: You're correct, because ultimately we're presenting a case to a court, and the court is going to look at what the requirements are in order to issue a restraining order and determine if we we have enough to go on. So we have to have clear and convincing evidence. A suspicion is not enough. Uh, But we will investigate suspicions that are credible, and it will lead us sometimes to social media, statements made at work, um, other acts, but we're going to want to present a full case so we can reach our burden.
5: But I assume that line between allowing someone to keep their guns or have them seized can be a pretty gray one, right?
4: It could be a gray one. Uh, We tend to err on the side of caution, and we will investigate it. So I don't want anybody who calls the city of San Diego to question whether they have enough evidence for us. Our job, and particularly law enforcement, they are trained. They know exactly what to look for in terms of gun violence. So let the professionals do the job and figure out if there is something here.
5: And what's your response to critics of red flag laws who say at the best, they're just examples of virtue signaling that doesn't really have a lot of effect in the real world, or at the worst, they pose a threat to people's constitutional rights to have firearms?
4: Well, I think the response is ask the people who have gone through the experience, those who've been protected, they will all attest that this was a crisis intervention tool that, was, that worked. But to the law of it, of course, there's due process. So the ultimate determinant doesn't lie with the city attorney or uh, whichever attorney is handling it. It doesn't lie with law enforcement. Both sides have an opportunity to talk to a court of law and give their side of the story. We look for the least restrictive alternative to try to address whatever is presented to us. Um, sometimes it's not taking away the firearm. There might be some alternatives that don't, uh, don't necessitate that action. So we really look at the individual before us and try to figure out how we're going to keep that person safe as well as the community safe.
2: That was San Diego City Attorney Mara Elliott speaking with the California Report host Saul Gonzalez.
0: We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the
1: relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
2: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Students at San Diego City College will now have the opportunity to earn a four-year degree for the first time in the school's history. The California Community College's Board of Governors approved the new Cyber Defense and Analysis Baccalaureate program this week. The state approval is a huge step toward a more affordable education for those community college students who need it most. Here to tell us more about it is KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. M.G., welcome back to Midday Edition. It's good to be with you. So what are the specifics of what the Board of Governors approved
6: for San Diego City College yesterday? I don't think we can understate the significance of this. First of all, I didn't know this, but City College has been around 108 years. And in that time, it has never offered a four-year degree program. And so that's exactly what happened with uh, the board. They said, yes, you can go ahead with this program and offer the full degree, which means a student could enter... At City College and finish at City College, saving money and time and, of course, getting them a great degree in the process.
2: That is great. So, so tell us about the
6: history of four-year degrees at other San Diego community colleges. Surprisingly, this has been in the works for some time. Specifically at City College, they've been working a few years To get all their ducks in a row, all the uh, documentation needed in order to go forward with this degree. But back in uh, 2015, there was actually a pilot program with other community colleges around the state that offered four-year degrees. San Diego Mesa College was among the first uh, community colleges in California to offer a baccalaureate program once the Board of Governors approved it, and that was in 2015 in Health Information Management. Right now, we know that Miramar College has submitted a proposal for a bachelor's degree program in public safety management. The new program will allow
2: students to obtain a bachelor's degree in cyber defense and analysis. They could have gone with
6: a lot of different fields of study. Why'd they choose that one? The short answer is because the administrators of that program wanted it so badly, so they put in the footwork to do it. But you also have to look at cyber defense. Everything is technology these days, uh, Jade. And so uh, this made a lot of sense uh, for it to be the first program to be expanded and allow many more students to participate. Definitely a need for that. So who's the community college district targeting for the cyber defense degree? And when can students apply for it? So there are already uh, students in the pipeline who are attending Uh, City College hoping to get their associate's degree. So some students have already been there for two years and they'll look forward to continuing the other two years in order to complete the uh, degree. But realize this is open to anybody who wants to attend City College for this program. So we expect that there will be a lot of applicants uh, who will want to be part of this. They will start taking applications in October and it will continue into the spring of 2024, with hopes to get the class going by August of next year.
2: Most of the students attending community college have very specific career plans that include healthy incomes. Uh,
6: What can graduates expect to make in the industry? Well, listen to this. The average pay for cybersecurity analysts in San Diego County could reach up to $111,000 every year. That is as recently as May of 2021. Those statistics were provided to us by the Federal Bureau of Labor Statistics. So it really is uh, a moneymaker. It really does offer students a future in uh, an economy that is uncertain at the moment. But certainly we know that technology is here to stay. So that could guarantee them employment and income for a very long time. And what are area community colleges saying about why this is an important direction for them to go in? Well, we all survived the uh, pandemic, which is ongoing, and all that uh, was attached to uh, education and the shutdowns and the delays and the learning loss and all of that. This is significant because it really offers students who need it affordable education and allows them to stay at one campus to complete their education versus I'm going to go to City College and get my associates, then I have to go through the transfer process, and then hopefully get accepted into a four-year university. This kind of programming will cut all of that out and keep them, uh, as one professor said, at home in order to complete their education. And
2: you touched on this earlier. Are there any efforts to offer more four-year programs in the future?
6: So I asked the professor who was in charge of this effort, I said, is this kind of the template? And he said, well, yes, kind of. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, each program is very specific. So the requirements are specific. So what it's going to take are administrators for different disciplines to come together. And yes, they can use the template that was created by the cyber defense group, uh, but you know, ultimately, they will have to put together their own documentation. They will have to put together their own proposal and once again, go to Sacramento and go before the Board of Governors to get it approved.
2: And you're actually going to be there when they launch this
6: program with students, right? Yes. uh, Classes are still out. They return to class next week, and we will be attending one of the first cyber defense classes so that we can talk to students and ask their opinion about this and whether they're going to apply to continue their education for the full four years. Uh, You know, some people might not. Some people might be satisfied with an associate degree and that works for them, but this definitely gives many more options for many more students.
2: We look forward to hearing about how this program works for them. I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. M.G., thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The city of San Diego's new organics recycling marks a shift in how much of our waste winds up in the landfill. Over the next few months, more and more residents will receive kitchen bins for all of their food waste, diverting it from the landfill to be composted instead. This shift may have some people thinking about creating less waste overall. San Diego writer Frederica Siren's family is serious about waste. Their goal is zero waste, and she's the author of the book a practical guide to zero waste for families. I spoke to her last year, and I started by asking her to explain what zero
7: waste actually means. Here's our conversation. Zero waste just means that we're making conscious decisions to not produce any waste. So for us, we live by the simple rule that if we can't compost it, recycle it, or reuse it, we just won't bring it into the home. We will refuse it. And what inspired
2: you to start reducing the amount of waste you throw away?
7: Well, so I've been an environmental writer for my whole adult life, so over 20 years. And, and I would write articles about uh, climate change and holding uh, companies responsible. But once I became a mom 15 years ago to my first child, I realized that climate change was actually an issue that was going to affect my children. And because this is their future and I want to save it for them because I want to give my kids everything. And that includes a perfect, nice, healthy planet to live on. So I started to think more about personal action, individual action, how important that actually is. It actually makes a huge difference. I do believe that companies and and government needs to also be held responsible and help out. But I do believe that individual action is really important. So I started to just small step by step, reducing our waste. So this was a journey that took us 15 years to get where we are today, zero waste, and it's slow and sometimes painful journey. But we got to the end where we are now producing no waste at all. Wow.
2: And so it's one thing to make that lifestyle change, but you decided to go ahead and write a book. So what made you decide to write that book on living a zero waste lifestyle?
7: So when I started 15 years ago, there were no zero waste movement yet. They weren't even any zero waste swaps. So everything I had to figure out on my own. And I think this is why it took so long for us to get to zero waste. So this is the guide that I wish I had 15 years ago. I so desperately wanted a guide to something to just give me the tips, the recipes, and the ideas. I had to find a little bit here and there and figure out on my own. So I want to write a book to help other people because I firmly believe that majority of people actually want to reduce their own waste. They just don't know how to. They don't know where to begin. And this is the guide to help them because there is something for everyone. And it's not about becoming zero waste. It is about reducing one small carbon footprint one step at a time.
2: And you know, what are some tips that you suggest in your book to help guide someone who wants to transition to a zero waste lifestyle?
7: So there's a lot of tips. For example, once we became zero waste and we did a trash audit, we actually realized that one third of our waste was food waste. Uh, and this was just simply food sometimes had gone bad because you know I didn't store the food the proper way or I forgot about food. So we really tackled food waste by reducing it, making sure that we ate our leftovers, we only shop when we needed to and stuff like that. So that is a tip to really go over your own food waste or your own food and just making sure you're storing everything the proper way and reducing it that way. So that is a great tip that's in there in my book. And then the other one is just, how can you actually go shopping without waste? What places can you go find food that doesn't contain packaging? And if you are not able to shop in bulk, well, there are still options. You can still choose a carbo box, which can be recycled over a plastic bag. And these are the small, small tips that actually makes a huge difference.
2: And what are some of the things that your family does on a day-to-day basis to reduce waste? You touched on this, but what are some small, small things?
7: Well, small things is like, instead of plastic toothbrushes, we use bamboo toothbrushes that when we're done with them, we can throw them into our compost. Or we do our laundry with soap nuts instead of laundry detergent, uh, which also when we're done with those, we can throw them also into the compost. We hang dry our clothes outside instead of using the dryer, which reduces a lot of uh, impact on the clothes, makes them last longer, but also reduces your uh, use of electricity. And what would you say to someone who
2: thinks going zero waste is just too much effort and takes too much time?
7: Well, that was actually my husband, because when I started my journey 15 years ago, my husband's journey was a little bit differently. He did not believe this was something doable. I mean, he he knew about climate change, and he thought we should do something. But I think he thought more that the government should do something about it. He thought that zero waste was going to be too hard and too much work, and he was too busy for it. But what he realized was that the zero waste actually saves a lot of money for us. It saves us $18,000 a year by just reducing our waste and living the way we do. But it is actually not taking much more time. We did not become zero wasters to complicate our life. We did it to uncomplicate our life. We have more time, more money, and uh, we're just having less waste. Frederica Siren is
2: author of A Practical Guide to Zero Waste for Families. Frederica, thanks for coming on the show.
7: Thank you for having me. Have a nice day.
0: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right.
2: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Today we're bringing you a story from our colleagues at the Bay Curious podcast. Parchester Village is a neighborhood in the Bay Area town of Richmond. After World War II, black ministers there made a deal with local politicians to build some of the state's first housing intended to be racially integrated, Parchester Village soon became a hub for Black political power, excellence, and community. Residents of the village remember the powerful sense of belonging they felt growing up right there. Reporter Ariana Prehel
8: digs into its history. You'd be hard-pressed to get lost in Parchester Village. There's a big loop road encircling the neighborhood of some 400 homes, like its own little bubble.
9: It felt like family, like a safe place, like coming home from school. You knew all your friends were going to be around the the neighborhood. They were all over the village. They were at the community center. But at night, you know, everybody's child went home. They knew when it got dark, it was time to go home.
8: A number of homes still have the original, unique flat-top roof design. There's two active churches, as well as a community center and park.
10: We were a progressive neighborhood. We really believed in community.
8: Walking around Parchester Village, you'll notice the streets sound like last names. Williams Drive, Bradford Drive, Jenkins Way. They are, in fact, the last names of ministers who are revered for brokering a deal with a local politician and a wealthy landowner to create quality housing for Black Americans.
11: It wasn't something given to them. It was because Black people had shown, had exercised their political muscle.
8: Dr. Shirley Ann Moore is Professor Emerita of History at Cal State Sacramento. She wrote a book about the Black community's impact on Richmond before and after World War II. Many Black Americans left the South and moved to Richmond for jobs in the shipyards. When the war ended, the wartime housing projects where they lived were scheduled to be torn down.
11: The post-war period saw a real frenzy of building uh, communities and homes and developments all around in the suburban areas, etc. But those developments that were going up, they were restricted on a racial basis. You know, the city officials and city fathers and others were hoping that those Black newcomers, all newcomers, but Blacks especially, would go back to from where they come. But that wasn't the case.
8: No, it wasn't. the working-class Black community grew, becoming an influential political force in Richmond, a political force that was exercising its power not just in Richmond, but across the country, paving the road for the modern civil rights movement.
11: Those working-class Black people took the lead. People who had been presumed not to be aware of the political currents around them were really in the vanguard.
8: In 1949, a man named Reverend Guthrie Williams, a carpenter by trade, started organizing to end housing and workplace discrimination in Richmond. A self-described persistent cantankerous cuss. Williams created the Universal Nonpartisan League to help bridge the racial divide. And he
11: garnered a lot of support you know from those people living in the housing projects and they became very valuable voters. And white politicians began to see that, too.
8: Amos Hinckley was one of those white politicians, a city council member running for re-election. He approached Reverend Williams and the League to support his campaign. Williams agreed in exchange for Hinckley's commitment to create permanent housing for Black people. Now, Hinckley was backed by Fred Parr, a wealthy developer who was key in building the Richmond Terminal and Kaiser Shipyards. Parr brought lots of industry to the Bay Area, like the Ford Motor Company planned in Richmond, a real power player who owns land. So Hinkley, the politician, arranged a meeting between Parr, the influential man with the land, and Reverend Williams, the organizer.
11: And Reverend Williams told Mr. Parr, who owned a lot of land out in this area, along with Standard Oil, which is now Chevron, that we as blacks wanted to own our own homes. We wanted to have our own yards.
8: Isaiah Turner is a former Richmond city manager who passed away in 2021. He was interviewed in 2001 for a documentary on North Richmond.
11: And they agreed that if the ministers could help them sell the homes for this land out here that he owned, then he would support working with the Black community so we could buy these homes.
8: By the end of the meeting, Williams had a promise from Parr to back the housing development that would become Parchester Village.
10: We advertised uh, that this was an American community. That was our slogan.
8: That's John Parr Cox, Fred Parr's nephew, in a 1986 oral history interview. He says his uncle intended Parchester Village to be a place people of any race could buy a home. Heads up, he uses some outdated language in reference to people of Asian descent.
10: I would say 30% of the sales were to uh, Caucasians and uh, the rest were to... Black people or uh, Oriental people. Within a couple of years, the community changed completely to all Black. Well, we, uh, we did not intend it uh, for anybody except those able to
0: purchase.
8: Historian Shirley Ann Moore says white flight was common at the time when white families fled neighborhoods where people of color were moving in. But some Black Richmondites held the more cynical view that Fred Parr never intended for an integrated community to work out.
11: Rather... It was merely an attempt by white politicians and power brokers in Richmond to maintain residential segregation while appearing to appease Black demands.
8: No matter the intentions of the white community, Reverend Williams, the cantankerous cuss, told a local newspaper that he wanted Parchester to be an all-American project, adding, quote, we hoped to set a standard of perfection and fair play in housing for the Bay Area.
11: The Black homeowners that moved there were had every intention of moving into an integrated, open community. But seeing that that was not going to be the case, they didn't say, well, you know, a pox on it and we'll just wait until that comes along. They were eager, as so many people were, Black, white, or others were after the war, to to own their own homes, to get move out of those cramped and dilapidated wartime housing projects and break out on their
8: own. The dream of a racially integrated community didn't work out. But the Black folks who moved in still created something special. The political pressure Reverend Williams and others placed on city leaders to build Parchester Village was just the beginning of what became an active, organized neighborhood association that advocated on behalf of residents and supported a vibrant community known for its safety, high-achieving children, and regular block party barbecues.
10: My name is Garitha Johnson, and I'm from Richmond, California, but I've been a resident of Parchester Village for the last 20 years now.
8: I meet up with Ms. Johnson at her home to hear stories about her childhood in the village's early years. She's invited her friend from down the street, Lori Hart, who also grew up in Parchester, to join us. And they're showing me the utmost hospitality, laying out a full spread of juice, coffee, and food for the three of us.
10: My girlfriend can't help herself. You say a little bit of something and she going to give you a variety.
9: Why things. am I going to short us? Everybody else get this.
8: There's fresh pineapple, pastries, cheese and crackers, the rosemary kind.
9: I found some Major Dickinson
10: just for you. <laughs>
8: Their warmth reminds me of sitting around the table with my aunts or grandmother.
9: Help yourself. Let me grab my coffee and I have ready.
8: to. After Miss Hart blessed the
9: food, Miss
8: Johnson starts telling me why her childhood in Parchester Village was so special.
9: In
10: my growing up here, we were really self-contained. We had our own store, our own gas station, our own nightclub. They would close off streets, block and it party. was a block party. And you would have like say like maybe on um, McLaughlin and Jenkins, like the loop, they would have all the meat. And then on the streets in between, you would have, like, the desserts. And then you would have other streets that would do the sides. So you would walk
9: and eat all day long. This neighborhood, you know, you couldn't get me out of here. I absolutely loved it. Mm -hmm. It was a place of safety. Right. We never locked our doors. I remember um, one of my best friends, uh, Lorna King, we wanted some Kool-Aid.
8: Purple Kool-Aid, to be exact. But neither Miss Hart nor her friend had any at their houses.
9: So I told her, I said, well, let's go to Pam's. And that's the lady that I babysat. So I opened the door. I said, Pam's got Purple Kool-Aid. You know, so I went in there and I rolled a note. Lori and Lorna took Purple Kool-Aid. That's the kind of neighborhood we lived in. You could walk into your neighbor's house, take something, leave a note, and it was fine. The
10: neighborhood council came about because... Parchester didn't belong to San Pablo or Richmond. And so there were no street lights. And from what I can understand, there weren't any sidewalks. And we had trouble with flooding out here. So there was a lot of infrastructure that wasn't taken care of. And so the homeowners got together and they petitioned the city.
8: Now remember, Parchester was built on an empty plot of land. In those first years as a community, the neighborhood council successfully lobbied the county to get services like street lights and sewage through nearby San Pablo. Later, residents wanted the village to be incorporated into Richmond so they could access funding and infrastructure from a bigger city. They got their way, joining Richmond in 1963, but didn't stop there.
9: We used to be extremely politically involved, and you know, I remember he- hearing about how they would go down to the city council and mm-hmm. raise some cane mm-hmm. if something was not right. Mm-hmm. And the council back then knew that Parchester had their back because mm-hmm. they would call them up. I'm going to need you to come. right? And they're like, oh, here comes them, them village. And they were coming.
8: For decades, Parchester residents fought for their community. Headlines from local papers highlight the many times they came out and made their voices heard.
6: Giant highway traffic angers village groups. Councils fight City Hall. Groups keep Richmond officials hopping. Residents unite against roadside dumping.
8: And perhaps the headline that encapsulates them all, from the Independent and Gazette in 1980, The Little Village That Could, Success Thrives in Bustling Parchester. Ms. Johnson again.
10: We were a community of many different professions, because at that time they wouldn't allow Black people to... Um, buying other neighborhoods. So we had plumbers, you know, laborers, teachers, doctors. We had day laborers, construction workers, just everybody came together into one place. And so everybody
9: took pride in their property. And it was anticipated and expected. You would be somebody growing up. I mean, you had the bookmobile. We were taught and encouraged to read. And we were taught to respect one another. Mm -hmm. And I really wish in all the communities that some of that stuff would come back.
8: Changes started creeping into the community in the 1970s. With the collapse of suburban segregation, the village lost some of its original appeal. Black families looking to buy homes moved into suburbs around Richmond. And many of the local businesses had long since closed by the 80s which Ms. Johnson says were the worst years.
10: And when crack hit the 80s, that's when the, the landscape really changed. It just kind of wiped through everybody's home. It's like everybody was touched with somebody who had got involved with that.
8: In the early 90s, the fatal drive-by shooting of a neighborhood teenager rocked the Parchester community. In response, the village reasserted its values, starting a youth association to give young people positive things to do. By the early 2000s, many original homeowners still called Parchester home, and the block party barbecues were still in effect. But it was becoming harder to hold on to that founding essence, and to homes.
9: When the parents started passing away, that just changed everything. The older generation Kids gave up their homes, you know, moved out. You know, the na- that's when the neighborhood start changing.
8: This is Charlesetta Pruitt, a former resident. Her family was one of the first to settle in Parchester Village. She left for a couple years as a young adult, but moved back to raise her family.
9: Once I got married, I came back, and you know, it was still that community,
8: that tight knit, open door place she'd known as a kid.
9: It was a village that everybody's home was your home. You were cared about. They provided for you.
8: But as time went on and families grew up and out, that strong sense of community has waned. Ms. Pruitt eventually remarried and moved to Stockton. She held on to her Parchester house as long as she could, but eventually sold it. Still, the village remains close to her heart.
9: Parchester Village will live on. It will not ever be gone. It's always going to be home for me.
8: Ms. Pruitt's story reminds me of a line in a report from UC Berkeley's Othering and Belonging Institute, which says, Home is housing animated. It is where the people, experiences, objects, and memories that make up our day-to-day lives are knotted together with broader relationships to people, places, and moments. Home is where housing and belonging come together. Like any neighborhood, Parchester has changed over the years. High housing costs have pushed many Black families out of the Bay Area. Twenty years ago, Parchester was 80% Black. In 2020, the census showed it's now only 20% Black. And the folks who've moved in weren't part of the community's founding. They didn't fight to become incorporated. They don't remember the thrill of keeping the paving company out. The community knot that older residents remember has loosened a little.
9: I love when I see families out here. It just warms my heart when I see the kids. Mm -hmm.
8: The two friends I had breakfast with, Ms. Johnson and Ms. Hart, they still serve on the Parchester Village Neighborhood Council. They're proud that one of the last standing original Parchester institutions, the Neighborhood Center, has recently been renovated. It has a new garden, and they refresh the mural that features young black kids playing on grass under the words, Parchester Village Touches the World. Ms. Hart has her sights on hosting a roller derby here.
9: We're looking forward to that, trying to restore some of the glory of the old and just bring back some of the remembrance. I'm going to get a roller derby out here if it's the last thing. I got to get on skates, and I can't roller skate. I'm going to get a roller derby out here because kids don't know what they're missing.
10: Right, right, they really don't.
9: That
2: was reporter Ariana Prehel from the Bay Curious podcast, which you can find wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right.